Chapter 16, Big Red S. That night, Fern complained about her aching stomach. She meowed and howled and turned in her sleep. Go sit on the toilet, I told her. She clung to my side, meowing and howling. Vanetta yelled, quit it, Vern. I can't sleep. I paid her no mind, and neither did Fern. If Fern couldn't sleep, then we all couldn't sleep. So too bad for Vanetta and too bad for me. I just let Fern carry on while I rubbed her stomach. It took a while, but she finally fell into sleep. Before we left for the center in the morning, I asked Cecile for food money for tonight's dinner. If I could hold on to $200 over 3,000 miles, I could hold on to a $10 bill for a few hours. Cecile didn't bother with any questions. She just gave me the $10 bill and a door key so she wouldn't have to get up and let us in. I think anyone standing at the front door made her jumpy. Even when we ate on the floor in the living room, I'd catch her eyes shift to the door when she heard a noise. Maybe she thought the Panthers were coming back to bother her for more ink and paper. I was glad Cecile handed over the money without a fuss or questions. That saved me from lying about getting shrimp lo mein when I had no intention of going to Ming's. Vanetta, Fern, and I had eaten our last plate of shrimp lo mein and egg rolls for the rest of our crazy summer. Shrimp and noodles swimming in sauce and deep-fried egg rolls had taken their toll on us. Not that mean Lady Ming would cry for her three-colored girls. She had other customers to yell at. All day long at the center, I could think of nothing else but a home-cooked meal. We marched to the Safeway store after playing in the park for an hour. My shopping list was burned into my brain. I picked up one head of cabbage, 17 cents, one onion, 8 cents, two potatoes, 23 cents, one package of chicken thighs, and one package of wings, $1.47. The price of chicken would have been thievery of the highest kind, according to Big Ma, who raised chickens down in Alabama and had only to go pull one up by its neck, kill it, pluck it, clean it, and fry it. Lastly, but most important, I dropped a can of stewed prunes into our shopping basket, 49 cents. There was plenty of money left over to call Pa and talk for as long as we wanted. Vanetta and Fern pouted as the groceries went into the basket. There were even a couple of, ah, shucks, and finger snapping as our dinner was placed on the cashier's counter. All the sniping between Vanetta and Fern over Miss Patty Cake was now aimed at their new enemies, the real food that we would eat until we returned to Brooklyn and me. I paid for the groceries and put the change in my pocket. I'd give Cecile the dollar bills and keep the coins for our telephone call to Papa. Why can't we have pizza, Vanetta moaned, or shrimp lo mein? Because, I said, enjoying my role as their enemy and big sister, that's not food for everyday eating. I held up the brown paper Safeway bag with its big red S printed smack in the center. This is. Big Ma would have been proud of me, but also angry that I allowed it to come to this. I'm sure she expected this kind of living from Cecile, but she expected better from me. Fooey. Double fooey. They could fooey all night, for as long as I cared. Vanetta said, I hope you know she won't let you cook that. Not in her kitchen, Fern said. So I said, then she'll cook in her kitchen. Papa's voice poured out of my mouth like a warm, steady tap water. When I put the key in the door, I said, go wash your hands and face real good. Play go fish until I call you for supper. Cecile wasn't in the living room, which meant she was in her kitchen. I didn't want Vanetta and Fern to see how afraid I was of Cecile. I thought of how she planted her body between us and her kitchen door, daring us to take a step further, that she'd rather let Fern dry up of thirst than give her a glass of water with ice. I thought about how crazy Cecile was and that I didn't know her or what she would do next. 
Now that I could smell the cabbage and onion from the brown paper bag, I lost that feeling of being calm and brave like Papa. I didn't dare walk in, so I called to her. Cecile! It didn't occur to me to use her poet name, Nazilla, to maybe soften her up. But that name didn't feel right coming out of my mouth. I dreaded this moment. Dreaded the thought of her swinging the kitchen door open and her seeing me with a bag of uncooked food. There was no putting it off. I called her again, this time louder. Cecile! Her hand slapped against the counter or tabletop, good and hard. In a few stumps, the door swung open and she was looking down on me. I took a step back and hugged the bag. I have to cook supper. She stared down at me and didn't speak. I didn't know what to do or say, so I took the change out of my pocket, all of it, and held it out to her. She took it, dropped it into her pants pocket, maintained her long, hard stare. If that was supposed to make me feel afraid, stupid, and small, it worked. Then she spoke. Why ain't you going to Ming's or Shabazz? We have a Shabazz in Brooklyn, the fish and bean pie place run by the black Muslims. I found my voice and said, we can't eat takeout every day. Vanetta and Fern can't stomach it. You can't come in my kitchen making a mess. This is my workplace. I don't need you in here turning things upside down. I said I don't make messes without a lick of sass. I spoke the plain truth. I never made a mess in my life, not even for the fun of it. Cecile went stomping and cursing back into the kitchen. No one told you all to come out here. No one wants you out here making a mess, stopping my work. I stood outside the kitchen with the Safeway bag held tight to my chest. I'm sure the Safeway S was the same in the same spot as Superman's big red S was in his sewn into his costume. I felt right about looking out for my sisters, but I didn't feel brave. All the same, I didn't want Vanetta and Fern to see me standing there like a scared dummy holding a bag of groceries. Cecile pushed the door open. Get a speck of grease on my work, you hear. I knew better than to wait for a nicer invitation, and I walked inside Cecile's kitchen. It was larger than our kitchen back home. Hers had both the cooking area and an eating area, which hadn't been set up for eating. There was a long table, only one chair, hers, and what I figured was her printing machine on top of the table. I didn't want to be caught gawking at her and her stuff. I went straight to the sink and started stripping the onion, washing the cabbage, washing the potatoes, washing the chicken parts, until I figured out what to do next without having to ask Cecile a thing. She hovered over her machinery, grunting and cursing. Then she got up, pulled open a drawer, and threw a potato peeler and a knife in the sink. The knife just missed my hands. She didn't look once, but said, don't go cutting off your fingers. There's no money to take you to the hospital. I felt her watching me at work. Thanks to Big Ma, I could skin a paring knife. I could skin a potato with a paring knife without wasting a scrap of white potato. I could cut up a whole fryer, too, even though I didn't have to this time. Cecile grunted. What are you going to do that chicken? I said. Bake it. Fried's faster, she said. I pointed to her papers. Grease. Papa's easy voice just slid right out of me, warm and steady. I could feel myself coming back. My voice, my steadiness. What are you going to do with those potatoes? Boil them with a the cabbage and onion. Hmm. <laughs> There was something about being here with her in the kitchen, and I knew what it was. I had a flash, a flash of us, quiet and in the kitchen, pencil tapping and her voice chanting. I blinked that flash away. I didn't have time to be pulled into a daydream. I kept doing what I was doing, and then I pressed my luck and asked for some fat back. Another grunt. No fat back, no salt pork, no pig of any kind in my kitchen. I shook my head. 
People in Oakland were touchy about pigs. They were touchy about the pig on their plates and the pigs, as Crazy Calvin called them, in the police cars. Back in Brooklyn, Big Ma wouldn't stand for cooking without pork on a Sunday. I couldn't even imagine Cecile and Big Ma sharing a kitchen or living in the same house. Since there was no pork, I used what Cecile had. Butter, salt, and pepper, plus the onion. It didn't smell like Big Ma's kitchen in Brooklyn, but it was the aroma of real food cooking. Now that I had our dinner underway, I wanted to take in Cecile's place of work, see what she was doing hovering over her machine quietly, carefully. From where I stood, stealing glances, it seemed like she was laying down puzzle pieces, picking up one piece of something and laying it carefully down on her equipment, picking up another piece and laying it down. Then she'd study the pieces, just the piece she had completed. She had pulled herself into her puzzle, laying, and had forgotten I was there. I could see why Vanetta and Fern were not allowed inside Cecile's kitchen. Cecile was fixed in a prayer. I was allowed to be there, but I didn't dare clear my throat, let alone ask her to show me what she was doing. Vanetta and Fern didn't have the sense to be quiet. We spread a tablecloth on the floor and sat cross-legged as if we were eating Mean Lady Ming's takeout or fried fish from Shabazz. While Vanetta and Fern ate begrudgingly, Cecile cleaned her plate and left three blanched chicken bones. This don't taste like Big Ma's, Vanetta said. Surely don't, Fern followed. We should have got pizza or shrimp lo mein. Cecile reached into Vanetta's plate and took the thigh that Vanetta had left. To me, she said, that's gratitude for you. I didn't care that they were ungrateful. I told my sisters, get used to eating like this. Vanetta said, I'm going to tell Big Ma and Papa. To them, I said, tell. When we were done, Cecile handed me every plate after she'd eaten whatever Vanetta and Fern had left. You started this mess, Delphine. You clean every dish and spoon. We had eaten with forks, but I wasn't about to correct her. I just took the forks while Vanetta and Fern disappeared into our room. At least I could look Pa in the eye and say, yes, Pa, I did what you said. I looked out for my sisters. At least I got Cecile to let me into her kitchen. Then she added, and don't expect no help from me. I said, I don't mind. She gave another hmm and a head shake. We're trying to we're trying to break yolks. You're trying to make one for yourself. If you knew what I've seen, what I've seen, you wouldn't be so quick to pull that plow. I sort of knew what she meant, but someone had to look out for Vanetta and Fern while we were here. I stacked the plates in the sink and ran the hot water. It wouldn't kill you to be selfish, Delphine, she said, and moved me out of the way to wash her hands. Then she went back to praying over her puzzle pieces. Chapter seventeen China Who Sister Makumbu gave Eunice, Hirihito, and me two empty milk cartons each to fill with water from the hallway fountain. Today our class was to take sponges that she and Sister Pat had cut into different shapes and make printed designs on old t-shirts. We used red, black, and green paint, the same colors as the ink Cecile used for her poems, and whatever flyers the Panthers asked her to print up. As Sister Makumba readied the paints, I thought of those colors dripping and splattering on Vanetta and Fern's clothes and having to scrub them without a washboard. Don't start anything until I get back with the water, I told Fern. Fern seemed off in a world of her own. Sister Makumbu clapped her hands, pressing me to get going. Fern would be all right for two minutes without me. I followed Eunice and Harry Hoto with a mind to hurry back. I had to admit I liked being seen as one of the classroom helpers. Vanetta and Janice were put out by the fact that they weren't asked to take a skip down the hall with Harry Hodo. They had both raised their hand to ask if they could help, too. Although I didn't like Eunice much, we glanced at each other and knew the same thing. Our middle sisters were boy crazy for Harry Hodo. 
He was probably 12 or 13 and only saw Vanetta and Janice as pests he could both mess with and keep at a distance. Harry Hoto beat us to the fountain. As he filled up his cartons, I studied every feature of his face. I wanted to ask him how it felt to have slanted eyes, hair like pine needles, and coppery-colored skin. Which one was he more, Chinese or colored? If I were Vanetta, I would have at least asked him that much, as she is always in his face. I would have asked him something interesting instead of, do you like tall girls or short girls? I knew my curiosity didn't excuse my staring or wanting to pry. After all, I certainly didn't like questions about not having a mother, so I scolded myself good while Harry Hodo filled up his second carton. I should keep my curiosity to myself. I should not stare at his long black eyelashes and coppery-colored skin. Besides, I couldn't go from planning to sock him to asking him about being a colored Chinese boy in one good blank. But before I had a chance to look away, he caught me staring at him. What? I gave it back. Did I say something to you? Thank goodness you can't see cherries in a chocolate bar. I'd have been a red-faced rose if it wasn't for my Hershey brown complexion. Take a picture. It lasts longer. I was not looking at you, boy. Girl pride made me lie hard and strong. Eunice gave me a word too glare, but I couldn't let this boy think I was staring at him, even if he caught me red-faced beneath my brown skin. I wouldn't let this boy with slanted eyes and copper-colored hair think I thought a thing about him, because I didn't. And if you're trying to run me and my sisters off the sidewalk with that skateboard, I'm going to stomp on you good. We were about the same height, but I hadn't met a boy I couldn't throw down to the ground. But then, I was taller than all the boys I knew. I yelled for you to get out of the way. Can I help it if you're slow? He was no Ellis Carter, Anthony, Antony, or the other boys who tapped me from behind and ran. He spoke calmly, with no fear of my boy-throwing abilities. Well, you shouldn't be skateboarding where people walk. Girl, that's no skateboard, he said, full of what I guessed was boy pride. That's my go-kart. Who cares, China boy? He gave me a look like he was going to drop both cartons and curtains and put up his dukes. One eyebrow went up. China who? I was glad he said that because my China you shot out right on time. Eunice jumped in and said, for your information, he's black and Japanese. Can't you tell the difference between a Japanese name and a Chinese name? I didn't like having my ignorance shoved at me, especially by the likes of Eunice Ankton. But there I was, not knowing a half Chinese face from a half Japanese one. I wasn't about to get a better look, so I knew know the difference. Looking at that stupid boy got me red-faced in the first place. The last thing I'd do, I'd do was own up to my ignorance and then apologize. I turned to Eunice as if Harry Hodo wasn't there. I don't care what he is. He just better watch out when he's riding that skateboard on the sidewalk. Harry Hodo turned and started walking back to the classroom. Go kart. I said, forget you, Harry Hodo. He said, forgot you, Delphine. Then I said quickly to get in the last lick, never thought about you. Eunice said, is that what you say? I'll say where you come from. That's so corny. For Eunice's information, there was more to that ride. Swallow a snake, jump in the lake, come back home with a bellyache. It did sound corny, so I kept it to myself. I don't care. She walked ahead of me. If you knew about Harry Hodo and Brother Woods, you'd leave him alone. Then I got suckered into a schoolyard comeback I should have seen coming. What about Harry Hodo and Brother Woods? Wouldn't you know it? Eunice had hips. She made sure I knew that fact as she walked ahead of me. That's for me to know and for you to find out. Chapter 18, Expert Colored Counting. 
Bonetta and Fern figured that since I talked my way inside Cecile's kitchen, I should hire her for other things, namely to have a television set in the house. It was bad enough knowing our California vacation wasn't much to have a back-to-school essay on. There were no Disneyland rides to write about, no Hollywood movie stars in the Safeway store to sign autographs, no surfing at the beach, or shaking peaches or plums from fruit trees in the backyard. There wasn't even a long-lost mama hugging and crying at the airport. I soon saw my sister's point. The least we could have was a television set. Cartoons on Saturdays, funny shows after dinner, the evening news and true crime shows for me. And of course, the Mike Douglas show five days a week because Mike Douglas always had Negro performers on his variety show. Outside of the flipper incident, we didn't fight over TV, which would mean less noise to bother Cecile. If she bought a portable TV set, we could put it in our room and she wouldn't have to see us for hours. Then it would feel like a real vacation, watching hours and hours of Get Smart and the FBI without Big Mom making us turn the set off. Once again, I found my calm, steady voice and brought our demands to Cecile at our next sit-down dinner. That's what protesters did. They brought their protest songs and their demands to the establishment because the establishment was in control. The establishment was someone over 30 years old who had the power. I didn't know Cecile's exact age, but she had to be over 30. That, plus her holding on to the money that Pa had given us, had made Cecile the establishment. All we needed were some protest signs and an or else. That wouldn't make Cecile mad enough to hurt us. Without an or else, protesters are just people with protest songs and demands who don't stand a chance of getting anything. The only things Cecile seemed to care about were her poems and her peace and quiet. The only thing that we seemed to care about was our television set. Armed with that, I brought up our sole demand and we stood ready with our reasons as if my Safeway S were pressed to my chest. She said, no one needs a television. We do, I said. To catch our shows, Vanetta said. Yeah, Fern said, to catch our cartoons. And the evening news, I threw in. You could practically see the whole world on the evening news. And Mike Douglas. That's right, we want Mike Douglas. How else would we see Motown groups, James Brown or Aretha Franklin? The Mike Douglas show wasn't the only place to find colored people on television. Each week, Jet Magazine pointed out all the shows with colored people. My sisters and I became expert colored counters. We had it down to a science. Not only did we count how many colored people were on TV, we also counted the number of words the actors were given to say. For instance, it was easy to count the number of words the Negro engineer on Mission Impossible spoke, as well as the black POW on Hogan's Heroes. Sometimes the black POW didn't have any words to say, so he scored him a one for being there. We counted how many times Lieutenant Uhuru hailed the frequency on Star Trek, We'd even take turns being her, although Big Ma would have never let us wear a mini dress or space boots. But then there was I Spy. All three of us together couldn't count every word Bill Cosby said. And then there was a new show, Julia, coming in September, starring Diane Carroll. We agreed to shout out Black Infinity when Julia came on, because each episode would be all about her character. We didn't just count the shows, we counted the commercials as well. We'd run into the TV room in time to catch the commercials with colored people using deodorant, shaving creams, and wash powder. There was a little colored girl on our favorite commercial who looked just like Fern. In fact, I said that little girl could have been Fern, which made Vanetta jealous. In the commercial, the little girl took a bite of buttered bread and said, Gee, Ma, this is the best butter I ever ate. Then we'd say it the way she did in her dead, expressionless voice, and we'd outdo ourselves trying to say it with the right amount of deadness. 
We figured that that was how the commercial people told her to say it, not too colored. Then we'd get silly and say it every kind of colored way we knew how. We gave Cecile all our reasons why we should have a television set in her green stucco house. We even showed her how it would give her peace of mind to do her work without bothering her. To our reasons, the establishment said, Television is a liar and a story. But we weren't ready to give it up. The evening news comes on television, I said. That's all true, because it's on the news. She grunted. And the weatherman gives the weather report. That's important. Another grunt. And do the monkeys do the monkey, and the monkeys do the monkey. Then Fern swung her arms up and down and bopped her head like a go-go dancer. Cecile made a what expression? Flamoxed. Good old Fern. Fern had managed to completely flamox the establishment. And then we started singing our protest song, chewing away at her peace and quiet. Here we come, walking down the street, like Davy Jones, Mickey Dolans, and the other singing monkeys. The next day, when we came back from the center, we found a radio in our room. The cord wrapped around its plastic body. It was a shown-off, left-by-the-garbage-jump secondhand radio. Benetta and Fern squealed as if the little colored girl in the commercial were standing in our own room eating buttered bread.